What's going on, everybody? And welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you in the evening hours of Friday, July 21st, 2023. You just hate to see a winning streak end like that, don't you? Cardinals-Cubs on Friday afternoon. Cardinals had an opportunity late in this game for a come-from-behind victory, and it falls flat thanks to, well, basically thanks to the umpire. Tonight we'll talk about the Cardinals' 4-3 loss to the Cubs on Friday afternoon and how, unfortunately, that snaps the six-game winning streak and therefore maybe turns the Cardinals more firmly into sellers than they already were, which I think they never really changed from that. John Moselak did say eight wins in a row, maybe that causes us to take a pause, but they never got to eight games. They got to six, and then it was cut short on Friday. Ron Culpa behind home plate at Wrigley Field. Alec Burleson, the fateful at bat, did not go the direction of Burley. And as a result, the Cardinals lose this game 4-3. to three. Now, other things could have happened that would have changed the outcome, certainly. But I think if you're watching all nine innings of this game, that was the primary moment where you say, if that goes differently, there's a very good chance the Cardinals end up with a W today. And we're talking now, tonight on B-Shape Daily, about a seven-game winning streak and potentially... As a result of that one game being flipped from a loss to a win, maybe the entire rest of the season, the trade deadline period, unfolds differently for the Cardinals and John Mosellock. Now, they never said that that was going to be the case. We've talked all week about it. We've speculated all week about it as the Cardinals have continued to stack up Ws, but John Mosellock didn't really leave a lot of room for interpretation going back to Monday when he basically said, yeah, we're in sell mode. And we're looking to acquire assets. He said, pitching, pitching, pitching. But the pitching that we do come up with is all going to be with the mindset of, can we get better for 2024? And when you recognize that Jack Flaherty, Jordan Montgomery, and Jordan Hicks are not under contract for that season, it makes it pretty obvious that those are the guys you are potentially considering unloading at the deadline. All three of them, in whatever order you want to place them as, are probably the Cardinals' three best pitchers. Maybe Miles Michaelis above Jack Flaherty, depending on the way you view that arrangement. But Jack Flaherty was on the mound today at Wrigley Field, and for a little while there, seemed like he was really coming along strong. But he ran into some trouble there in the third inning for the Cardinals. Was able to bounce back from it nicely to the extent that he was able to get through six innings. But four earned runs, all of them coming in that third inning for the Chicago Cubs. A couple of home runs. He gave up one to a guy that I had honestly never heard of in my life. Miles Mastroboni. I'm probably still saying that wrong, but it inspired me to make a tweet. If you've seen the viral video of the woman on the plane who says, that guy's not real, I had to take that. I, I was surprised, honestly, that people didn't latch onto that a little bit more. I thought that was funny. But this Mastroboni guy, I have never heard of in my life. Honest to goodness, but he homered today off of Jack Flaherty, as did Cody Bellinger, which was much more anticipated. Uh, Cody Bellinger has had a really nice season for the Cubs. He's got an OPS of 913. It's higher than anybody on the Cardinals. He signed a one-year contract, and when it comes to one-year contracts for a guy on a bounce-back deal, it almost doesn't even matter what the amount is. I was all in on Bellinger, thinking the Cardinals should make a run at him and I feel very much vindicated for that uh, that that mindset. Today he goes three for four, a couple of RBIs on the home run, scored the run. 
317 batting average, a 913 OPS. He's basically back to Bellinger MVP status of where he was in his best years with the Dodgers. And he just completely fell off the map. I don't know what it was. I know that there are ways to speculate about what it was when he was with the Dodgers toward the end of his career. Honestly, for me, I think it took him a while to get over that shoulder injury that he suffered in the playoffs when he did the the celebration and basically like went up top for a big-time high-five leaping off the ground and did it with a lot of force. I think that whole, like, it wasn't even a high-five. It was like just like mashing your arm into another guy's arm and throwing your shoulder out of position. That was like the dumbest thing he could have done. I Maybe that was what it was for Cody Bellinger to take a number of years to get back to form, but he looks like he's in form now. And again, I don't even know what they're paying him. It's like $15 million or $18 million, whatever it is. It literally does not matter. It's a one-year contract. The Cardinals once paid Greg Holland for a year and didn't even use him past the end of July. So Cody Bellinger, is he would be the best hitter on the Cardinals right now if he were on this team. And suddenly you'd feel like your outfield situation is a lot different, but I digress. It's just about identifying. I mean, that's what it boils down to. John Mosellock identifying, and he can start with this trade deadline period, but in the offseason as well. Pick the guys and identify the guys that you can sign and can be more valuable than the amount that you signed them to. I mean, that sounds simple. But if a guy like Cody Bellinger has won an MVP and you can just have him for money for a year, blows my mind that that wasn't something the Cardinals were interested in. And hey, maybe I should say I'm wrong and they were interested and they just, you know, he picked the Cubs or they offered more money or whatever. But I just, from the very beginning, I thought, you know what? Cody Bellinger would be a nice fit. And I feel vindicated. I feel very good about that because he is the best hitter on the Cubs. And we'll see if he ends up getting traded at the deadline as well because the Cubs are kind of in the same boat as the Cardinals out of the race. The Cardinals are two and a half games behind Chicago. And if Chicago thinks they might be sellers, well, certainly the Cardinals should be as well. But nevertheless, I want to spend some time tonight on B-Shape Daily talking about the eighth inning, the fateful eighth inning for the Cardinals, how we view that entire situation with Alec Burleson. Perhaps Nolan Gorman could have been at the plate, but Ron Culpa messed it up anyway. We'll talk all about that and get into the rest of the situation as we see fit. When it comes to the St. Louis Cardinals, having a loss tonight certainly does hamper the potential for them to scrap the plans to sell and go for this thing in the NL Central I do believe the Brewers lost tonight as well, though. And so throughout all of this, the Cardinals have basically been 10 games back in every circumstance of the entire thing. Because when they win, the Brewers win. And when they lose, so too does Milwaukee. And that was the case today. But as we jump into the regular content that we want to get into tonight about today's game, just want to remind you guys to subscribe on the YouTube channel. Brennan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer, or you can go to youtube.com slash at bshafer12 if you've never experienced the YouTube side of things before. would love to have you on board. Give this video a like and drop your comment below. Let us know what do you think of where the Cardinals are at this point, even after the loss on Friday. Does that change it for you if you are on board with saying, hey, the Cardinals should go for this thing. YOLO, let's see what happens. But then they lose that game on Friday in the way that they did. How does that impact things? Or have you been one of the more rational fans? I would say like the side of it that says to not sell anymore because they've been winning recently, that's admittedly like the 
irrational side of things. But that's kind of the side that I find that I would most identify with because it's more fun. It's more fun to dream and imagine what could happen. But I think a lot of Cardinals fans, and I give them credit for this, view it as, look, this Cardinal team has not won a playoff series in a while, not since 2019. And a lot of fans are tired of the notion that they can get in and then try and figure out a way to advance with smoke and mirrors, when in reality, the foundation probably does need to be a little more solid if you're going to make any noise once you get to October. And that's the way the Cardinals fans have viewed it for a number of years. And I think at this point, the Cardinals front office has also sort of taken that step to say, we get it, we see the way things have gone. We really tried to play this thread out to the very bitter end when it comes to the model that we have used for a number of years. But now we're sort of beginning to realize that that model will need to change. And I think that also maybe needs to happen when it comes to the position player groups and the way they have divvied up playing time or prioritized different players over the years and they continue to maybe get those things wrong. It's not to say that the group they have now isn't talented. I think it is. And I think that a lot of the guys would be valuable to other teams in trades if the Cardinals were willing to include them. I don't think they should be willing to include most of the players that they have in their position player group right now, but they do have a situation that they face where on the middle infield, combining with the outfield group and a couple of guys who happen to cross over to both of those categories, like Tommy Edmond and Brennan Donovan, when healthy for both of them, because right now both are injured. But with that entire group of players, you do have a, a number of guys where you say, yeah, we probably have some surplus. We have some extra and could afford to, if we can find the right pitcher or two, maybe we can pull off a trade where we do send away a guy that we like and we think he's a good baseball player, but that's the beauty of the trade because so too does the other team that we're sending him to, which is why they are so willing to send me this pitcher or whatever it ends up being. I mean, it's going to be a pitcher. But that's kind of the thought process where it takes talent to get talent. The Cardinals have a surplus in one area, and they have a deficiency in another. And so to me, getting the starting pitching would be the necessity. But let me know what you think right here on the YouTube comment section. And make sure you guys subscribe to the B-Shape Daily Podcast. We'd love to have you if you have the Spotify app. And if you don't, don't bother with it. I'm not worried about it. But if you do have the app, and it's as simple as just typing into your Spotify app, B-Shape Daily, B-S-C-H-A-E-F-F daily and clicking the follow button and the five-star button on that podcast, that would be really helpful to me personally. And if you like my content, would appreciate you guys doing that. But if you have an iPhone, Apple Podcast is another place that you can subscribe to the show. But hey, at least you're on YouTube. That would be the name of the game. So thank you guys so much for being here. But now that I've talked for a little bit with the preamble, I want to jump right into the Alec Burleson at-bat, that moment in the top of the eighth inning today at Wrigley where... The game was essentially lost for the Cardinals. I know they did end up getting a couple of men on base in the ninth inning, one of which came on a Wilson Contreras hit by pitch. I hope his hand slash wrist ends up being okay because as a catcher, you kind of need both your hands. I mean, even as a, it doesn't matter what position you are, you need your hands. And Contreras continues to get hit in like some awkward areas and then be okay because of it. But that was kind of a, a little bit of a nervous moment. But nevertheless, the Cardinals lose this game 4-3. to three. To me, not because of what happened in the ninth, but more so because in the eighth, 
there was a moment where like they had done it. They had taken advantage of the situation that they were given, and Ron Culpa, the umpire from Hazelwood, Missouri, decided otherwise. Like I just don't know any other way to equate it, and I feel bad because if it was anybody else, I'd be like, oh, that umpire is just so bad, just awful. Unfortunately, I feel like a little bit of personal aspect to this because I've met Ron Culpa and talked to him, and he's a nice guy. But, man, was he making some bad calls today on the field at Wrigley. I mean, this was pitiful. This single-handedly, well, I I guess I can't say single-handedly because the rest of the game would still get to unfold. But this was about as much of an impact as an umpire can have on a game that I've seen all year, I think, in Major League Baseball. Like, listen, I normally am not that guy. If you listen to B-Shape Daily for a long, long time, this is what, episode 420-whatever-it-is, you have probably heard me at one time or another say, hey, Cardinals fans were mad tonight about the ump, and I just don't really care, because a lot of times I don't. A lot of times I'm like, you know what? It's a hard job. It's borderline. I like the human element. I'll give the the catcher some credit for maybe stealing a strike. When it's a Cardinals catcher, you're all about it. You're like, yeah, steal a strike, dude. That's awesome. But when it's the other way around... It doesn't feel so good. But normally, unless it is egregious, I don't I don't bring it up unless Cardinals fans want it brought up. And then I'll I'll hesitate to do it, but I'll still talk about it because I know it needs to be. But this is a case where I am a hundred percent on board with every single take that Cardinals fans have about the umpiring today at Wrigley. That was pitiful and it cost the Cardinals the game. I honestly believe that it did. And a lot of people on Twitter were probably not happy with me and the people who follow me on Twitter but also listen to my show will now get the full opportunity to understand exactly what happened with that. But I was typing up the tweet as Alec Burleson's at-bat was unfolding because I was frankly surprised that it wasn't Nolan Gorman batting instead. Because initially, Gorman was in the on-deck circle, which I agreed with. You have a right-hander on the mound. believe it was Mark Leiter Jr. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but... The Cardinals had runners on first and second with one out. Brennan Donovan was at the plate, pinch hitting because he still cannot play the field. He was out of the lineup today against the lefty Justin Steele. The Cardinals went very right-handed heavy. I believe it was righties throughout the lineup, one through nine. No Newt Bar, no Gorman, no Donovan. That's a lineup you almost never see full of right-handed hitters. But they had a lot of lefties, therefore, to use off the bench and deploy at Ollie Marmol's leisure. And in that eighth inning, you have Donovan as one of those guys. And the move that I thought was brilliant, I was fully in support of this. I thought it was gutsy as hell. It was certainly risky. But I think it was Jordan Walker on first base, Tyler O'Neill on second, and T.O.N. takes third base. They steal. They pull off a double steal. The trail runner is able to easily get to second base because the throw goes to third. And Tyler O'Neill, man, that's the kind of stuff he can do. Like, for as much as we have sort of, and I don't even know if it's been that we've belittled Tyler O'Neill, but we have definitely been skeptical of him as the asset that he can be for the Cardinals moving forward. And in the moments where he is injured and it's like it feels like he's never going to make it back because the back issue and he's not going to be able to get on the field, 
in those moments, which, by the way, it wasn't a moment. It was weeks upon weeks upon weeks. May 5th, I believe, was the day that he went to the IL, and he didn't return until mid-July. So it was a long time. I think we were right to go, man, this is killing this team if this was a guy that they were going to rely upon. But also, when you looked at his numbers, 620 OPS, it wasn't like he was lighting the world on fire with his performance, and we know that his performance in center field wasn't good. I think he should have stayed the left fielder the entire time. I think that probably wore on him a little bit, trying to bite off more than he could chew. As the the player, as the athlete, you always want every opportunity. But I think the Cardinals should have had the foresight to say, look, he is a gold glove left fielder. Let's stick him in left field and have him be elite instead of trying to screw around with what we need to do with center field. And I still maintain that the reason they did it in the first place was because they didn't view Dylan Carlson as an everyday player. They were very skeptical of him against right-handed pitching. And, you know, the season in his entire career has played out as such where he has not been as strong against righties. As a switch hitter, that's frustrating because you'd like to think that the switch hitter element can be an advantage, but he simply has not been as good from the left side of the plate. Even though he's got moments where he's fine, he's not been able to string it together consistently, and he also kind of felt like the Cardinals didn't give him the chance to do so Based on his numbers in spring training, he had some pretty good numbers against right-handed pitching. I think at 981 OPS, he felt like maybe that should be the cue to the Cardinals giving him that everyday opportunity, whether it was a lefty or righty, doesn't matter. But then Jordan Walker gets called up, and you already had Newbar that you were committed to, and Tyler O'Neill was back. So that is what began the squeeze of Dylan Carlson, which has ensued for more than three months at this point and could end up with him in a Yankee uniform or somebody else's uniform as a result. And again, I think that would be short-sighted. But at the same time, I don't want to diminish what Tyler O'Neill has done the last couple of days since returning to the team. He has uh, the ability to move on the bases. He's got good speed, stole that base, which again, I thought you're a Cardinal team. That's however many games out. You're 10 games back. You've got nothing to lose at this point and you're trying to make a comeback in a singular game against the Cubs, if you think you've got a beat on a pitcher, freaking go for it. I have no problem with Tyler O'Neill going second to third, stealing that base, doing so successfully for a guy of his speed. Like, he should be that guy every time he steps on a base, though. If he gets to first base, it should be, on every television broadcast, a complete focus on, is Tyler going on this pitch or the next one? Like, when's he taking the base? Not if, but when. That is the kind of athlete that Tyler O'Neill is, and when he is going confidently, there's nobody like him. I'm serious. For as many things that I have said skeptically about Tyler O'Neill this season, when he has confidence in himself, there is almost nobody like him in Major League Baseball because he could probably be like a 30-stolen base guy, probably more. He could hit 30 to 40 home runs if he's going to do what he's fully capable of on his best day. And maybe you might say, well, anybody could do on their best day better than they would on their aggregate. And that's fair. But I just want to make sure that I'm clear about this. I am not confused about what the Cardinals see in Tyler O'Neill. I don't have any confusion about that at all. It's a matter of can he do it consistently. Eventually comes the time to put up or shut up. And I feel like in Ollie Marmel's head, that time was April 1st of 2023. You know, March 30th or whatever was opening day. They said, Tyler, it's you, man. You're the center fielder. Go. Go do it. 
And then five games into the season, Ollie Marmel had to have been beside himself to see Tyler O'Neill rounding third base and just like moving in slow motion. And, and remember that game at Bush against, I, I think it was the Braves. He was thrown out at the plate. And that was the night that Ollie said it was a hustle thing, which was a, he said, he said that ensued for three days. And Cardinals fans, some of them said, oh, that's the beginning of the end there for the Cardinals. We all should have known that Ollie didn't know what he was doing. Well, I, I think it's deeper than that. I think Tyler O'Neill has been given opportunities by this organization, and he hasn't always picked them up. He hasn't always taken his opportunity and ran with it. However, sometimes you're a guy and you've got injuries, and you like it's not his fault that he's got the injuries in his body that he has from time to time. Sometimes, do I think the Cardinals would have liked to have seen Tyler O'Neill grit through some of those and just keep on playing? Yeah, that's a thing. They wish that he was a little more durable. But I bet he wishes it too. And so that is a tricky thing when you're talking about a guy's livelihood, a guy's career, to just make these bold statements and say, I know what the hell I'm talking about, even though I'm not in the building and I don't know Tyler O'Neill's medicals and all these. But as fans, as media, we want to feel like we know what's going on. And so we'll make these bold proclamations. And there are probably times this year where I've talked about Tyler O'Neill and I've just kind of written him off like, okay, sure, we'll see him when we see him. And at the time, that felt right. But you know what? Right now, we see him, and you get it. You get what it looks like. But the question does become, how many weeks will go by before the next setback or the next flare-up? And is that fair to Tyler O'Neill as a person to ask that question? Probably not. But I think if you're the Cardinals organization, that almost does have to be your mindset, where you have to make a wager. You're betting at this point. You've got your poker chips, and you say, listen, am I going all in on this hand, or am I going to fold, keep what I can, and I'm going to wait till the next hand to make sure that I don't go into ruin as a result of my belief in this particular hand? Well, this isn't poker. This is Major League Baseball, and Tyler O'Neill is the hand. He's the player. He's the guy that you have a chance to go all in on, and really, it doesn't cost you a lot to do it. You just say, hey, we're going to keep playing you, which is what the Cardinals have said, And they're going to find out what he is. But it has been a very topsy-turvy kind of year for Tyler O'Neill. And as much as I am a big Dylan Carlson fan, I think he's a good player. I think he's a kid that's 24 years old that has not gotten the full opportunity that he deserves. And And people can look at his plate appearances and say, well, he's played X amount and he's gotten all these chances. Why would you say something like that? Well, I would say, look, he was a former top prospect. He was a top 20 prospect in MLB, according to MLB Pipeline coming into the 2020 season. Julio Rodriguez was, and I won't be definitive about this because I don't remember, he's either one spot above or below. Go to MLB Pipeline, go to the 2020 top 100, and it was Julio Rodriguez, Dylan Carlson in one order or the other, both within the late teens in the top 20 of the MLB prospects. Dylan Carlson had a pedigree. And I feel like the Cardinals, yeah, maybe they've given him plate appearances, but it's not really been by their choice to put him out there every day to give him the center field job the way they did to Tyler O'Neill. What's the reason for that? Well, Dylan Carlson in 2021 had a 780 OPS, and he really demonstrated some really good skills for like a 21-year-old kid, 22-year-old kid. Tyler O'Neill, though, man, he was a top 10 finisher in the MVP vote in the National League for that 2021 season. And once you see that happen for a full season, 
you're going to chase that for a while. And that's what the Cardinals have done. And so it's maybe through no fault of Dylan Carlson that he has been on the outs a little bit with this thing because Lars Newbar is a talented player that I think is, I'll admit it, I think he's more well-rounded than Dylan. I think Dylan's a better center fielder defensively. The, the catch that Dylan almost made today, I really wish he had caught it because it would be good for my brand. But that's just, that was a tough play, one that he probably should have come up with for his skill level. But you're telling me Lars Newbar is going to make that catch from center and get that jump? No chance. I'm not even, I'm a, I love Lars Newbar. I was the one that came out a couple of years ago and said, no chance you trade him for Frankie Montas. Don't do it. If you were to pull up that piece of crap trade website, it would say to do it at that time, I think. But I said, you can't do it. Lars Newbar is too valuable to this team. And Frankie Montas, frankly, is too much of a risk. And both of those things, I think, have proven to have been true. But Lars Newbar has not taken off like a superstar. He's just a solid outfielder, but he's still a young guy. But Dylan Carlson doesn't get the benefit of that doubt. For whatever reason, it's not viewed in the same way. I think it's because of the right-handed pitching issue. If you were to match up Lars Newbar against right-handed pitching, you feel good about the result. If you do it with Dylan Carlson, you have a 1,000 plate appearances of big league play to say, eh, he's very much mediocre against righties. But for a guy who's only 24 years old, I hate that that's the book on him and that that's probably something that he's not going to be able to change, at least in the minds of the St. Louis Cardinals. But that's fine. If they trade him, he'll go somewhere that I think he's going to get the opportunity. And then we'll eventually the beauty of all of these debates, when you debate something when it comes to sports, you get to find out. Unless you die, you get to know, right? Like you get to see the next few years play out. And if you have a good enough memory, you can look back and say, hey, at the time, I thought you were wrong about this thing, but it turns out you were right. Or maybe you'll be able to say, hey, back in 2023, I thought you were so full of crap, and it turns out you were. And then there's nothing you can do but to own it. In almost every circumstance, at that point, if you're proven to be incorrect about a, a take, there's nothing you can do but go, "Yep, yeah, you know what? I missed that one. The only one that I'll never give in on, and nobody here will care about this, and so I'll make sure to keep this to like 15 seconds. But in the NFL, Trey Lance, drafted by the San Francisco 49ers, traded up to get him at the number three pick. He's maybe never going to get a chance to be their quarterback, even though he's never really played. And I think he's got a good skill set. And everybody on the team says they love him, they like the guy, all that good stuff. And so that's the one where if he never starts in the NFL again, I'll go, I was never wrong because he never freaking played. So give me a break. I still will wear the T-shirt. I have a Trey Lance jersey already. Uh, maybe that was a little premature. But anyway, but most of the time when it comes to professional sports, you're going to get to know if the guy that you backed personally ends up being him or not. Dylan Carlson, we'll see if that's what the Cardinals are elsewhere. But this was my like long tangent. You know that I have one of them per episode of B-Shape Daily, which, by the way, YouTube comment section, I want to hear your thoughts. I read every comment. Let me know what you think. But I was going on this tangent to describe why Tyler O'Neill should not be completely written off by the fan base. And the Cardinals have certainly not done it. And they have been given every reason to have done it, by the way. Like, I think there was a time this year where they were not too pleased with him. Through no fault of his own, maybe, he went and got the second opinion about his back. They felt like, shoot, this dude should be back in a few weeks. And it took, you know, two and a half months. And so was there frustration by the Cardinals from that? Absolutely there was. But they also are savvy enough to say, look, 
whether it's just to get him a showcase ahead of the trade deadline or we really think this guy can be a part of our present and future, we're going to have to play him. And so that's what they're doing for better or worse. And they're letting some bygones be bygones about the way his season has gone to this point because inevitably, if he goes seven for his next 11 over three games, his OPS isn't 620 anymore. It's about 720 at that point because he's the kind of player that can go on a run and carry you. And by the way, he came out, it was 620. Now it's up to 653 for the OPS after a nice day on Thursday. And then Friday, he went one for four, scored a run, but also reached base via walk. He's a talented guy. I think they just miscast him and that, along with the injuries that are basically a a historical factor for him, caused Tyler O'Neill some issues. But if the Cardinals never put him in center field again, I I think they're on to something. I think they could potentially get some value out of O'Neill. But that's my long little tangent. We'll get back into the context of this game. He steals third, trail runner Jordan Walker to second base, and now you're in a spot where a base knock by Donovan, who is more than capable of giving you one off the bench, would give the Cardinals a lead. Instead, he gets walked, which brings up the situation of the bases loaded, one out, down by one, tying run on third, go-ahead run on second, basically do anything but ground into a double play, right? Nolan Gorman had been in the on-deck circle until the Donovan walk, and they pull him back, bring up Alec Burleson to face the righty Mark Leiter Jr., Alec Burleson has lesser numbers on the season when compared to Nolan Gorman. We know that Gorman went through a really long slump, but was amazing before that and has kind of turned it around since then. Whereas Burleson has, you know, he's got a 239 average, a 682 OPS. The one thing that he does have is he does not strike out. I think he struck out like 22 times all year which if he played a full season would be very, I I think I said it yesterday, it would be Pujolsian, the lack of strikeouts for Alec Burleson. He just does not whiff. He doesn't do it. And that's a credit to him. And in this spot, I think Ali Marmel thought, you know, we could use somebody that comes up and just puts the ball in play. What you're really looking for, though, is the fly ball that gets it deep enough to tie the game. Alec Burleson could potentially put the ball in play. The question is going to be, is it in the air or is it on the ground? And ultimately, the answer to that question ends up costing the Cardinals the game. But I looked at it as Nolan Gorman's going to either strike out or hit the ball in the air somewhere. So he's the guy I won for that spot. I didn't second guess it. I was typing it up at the moment. I was totally committed to saying I would go Gorman I would stick with what I had originally. The walk to Donovan does not change anything. Ali Marmel, I think, was trying to avoid the strikeout, I guess. We don't know. Unfortunately, we don't know, or at least I don't know, because, and I'm kind of scouring the Twitterverse right now to find this out, there was no Bally Sports postgame because they didn't have the game today. It was an Apple TV game, and so as a result, there was not any way to see the video. Nobody had a video to my knowledge of Ali Marmel and what he had to say about it at the end. And I am not in Chicago this weekend, next year. Maybe that's something that changes. Got to get this YouTube channel going and and finance some of this stuff. 
but I didn't see anything from Ollie Marmel. So if there was a beat reporter that y'all saw, put it down in the YouTube comment section what he had to say. But I scoured a couple people. I didn't see it. But I did see from Alec Burleson postgame some quotes. Jeff Jones, John Denton, I think both tweeted this one out. And I'll read it here from J.D., Alec Burleson said, on 3-0, I thought it was a borderline, and I asked him if it was corner, and he said, yeah, that's the corner. To me, that means you're not going any more than that outside, and then strike two happens, which forces Alec Burleson to swing on 3-2 and two on a pitch that was probably a little bit further outside, but again, if you're Burley, bro, if you're taking that third pitch, I, I don't know the, the position that Ron Culpa put him into, I don't think you can take that third pitch. I think you do have to do exactly what Alec Burleson did. That wasn't his fault. It Was it only Marmel's fault? No. I disagreed with Burley over Nolan Gorman because I felt like Gorman's been red hot over the last few games, and he's the guy that could put one out of the yard. And at Wrigley, a one-run lead is not safe. A two-run lead is not safe. Crazy stuff can happen at Wrigley Field. So if I have a chance to bring up a power hitter facing the predominant side that he's capable of going up against a right-handed pitcher. I'm going Nolan Gorman every single time. Like I said, the season-long numbers would dictate that. Gorman's got a 799 OPS, Burleson a 682. They both have a 239 average, so where does the difference come from? The power that Nolan Gorman brings that Burleson does not. And honestly, I guess I could go through this and look, but I believe that Gorman probably maybe even has a better on base percentage as well because he draws more walks. Yeah, Burleson's got a 291 OBP. Nolan Gorman has a 321. So the choice was Gorman. I think Ollie overthought it personally. But that's not me saying Ollie cost the Cardinals the game. More than anybody, Ron Culpa cost the Cardinals the game. Horrendous umpiring by Ron Culpa. It was terrible. Here's the way it broke down. Every single pitch from Mark Leiter Jr. off the plate, all six of them, to Alec Burleson. The first three called a ball. The fourth one on a 3-0 count called a strike. It was close enough that I don't even blink about that strike call because that is honestly the way that MLB umpires function. Is it right? No. The zone should be the zone, always. But it's not that way, and at some point, you you watch enough baseball to just go, yep, that's what these freaking guys are going to do. The umpires are going to extend the A-B. If you're anywhere close, if you know ball, you know that's what happens. Should it be that way? I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying it is what it is. But the next pitch should never happen that way. 3-1 count, it was at least, as Burleson said, Maybe two baseball lengths off the plate compared to the previous one. It was outside by five or six inches. It was hilarious looking at the Apple TV broadcast of like their little StatCast cam or pitch tracks or whatever the hell they call it on Apple. And it's like a, a gyroscope and it's going in 360 degrees and you're seeing the angles and everything. There's not an angle on earth that shows that is a strike. Terrible call by Ron Culpa cost the Cardinals tremendously in that spot as a result of what happened next. If Alec Burleson punches one into the outfield, nobody cares. You thank Ron Culpa for giving Burleson the opportunity for multiple RBIs instead of just one. But that's not what happened. 
And if I'm Mark Leiter, I mean, this is exactly what you should be doing. He throws one about two inches even further outside than the previous pitch, knowing that Alec Burleson is fed up. He showed some emotion after the strike two call and knows that he has to swing. He has to offer it this pitch. And because it's freaking seven inches off the plate, he grounds out into a weak double play. Great responsiveness by the pitcher to know the umpire was going to give you any call you needed at that point, but not a single one of the six pitches he threw to Burley were a strike. It was heinous. It was par for the course for umpires in 2023. But I will say that, again, I mentioned it at the top of the show, Cardinals fans oftentimes are bitching about the umpire, and I almost never, usually I'm like, okay, guys, it is what it is. There are other reasons the Cardinals lost this game. That's not what I'm saying tonight. Tonight, Ron Culpa cost the Cardinals the baseball game because I believe that if you walk Burleson and it's tied, you've still got only one out, and then you've got a chance to continue that inning. I just don't, I mean, it's top of the lineup at that point. New bars coming up, Goldsmith are not up. There's no way the Cardinals lose. Well, there's a way, but do I think it would have happened? No. Do I think that Gorman should have batted over Burleson? I do, but that's more of like nitpicky. That's more like we're just talking ball at a bar and we've all got opinions and, you know, who knows who's correct, right? We'll never see it play out the other way, so we can't confirm it. But that's what we love about sports talk. But in this case, it's not. that's not really the do-or-die moment of this game. It's Ron Culpa just doing his job more effectively. There's no recourse for umpires. I am so in favor of a challenge system at a minimum where I don't know if it's each batter should get a chance once per game to go, hey, check that. And you might say, well, my gosh, if every batter that's 18 guys, that'll take a long time. It's pretty simple the way you implement it, but MLB would just have to care enough to do it. They would have to care enough about the integrity of the game to actually have these results matter in a way that, you know, it doesn't affect their bottom line. It doesn't affect their revenue or their profits to have these calls go wrong. It just affects the diehard baseball fans who know the game. It affects their their mood and feeling about the game because it's just completely random chance at that point. Like, if you can roll a dice and say, yeah, it's going to be a ball or a strike, and it doesn't matter what the pitcher does, that's kind of what you had there in that inning. Ron Culpa decided, ah, these are strikes, these are balls, I get to pick because I'm the umpire. And that's complete BS. It should not be that way. So, am I am I in favor of robot umpires? Not necessarily. I'm getting to the point, though, where I would take it because of just how bad we see some of these calls go. I mean, Ron Culpa's not a bad person, but he had a bad day at his job, or at a very minimum, he had a bad 90 seconds at his job where he called those consecutive strikes against Alec Burleson. Neither of them had any business being called a strike. And unfortunately, when you get into the ninth inning of a game, as an umpire, you've got to be aware of the situation and say, I cannot allow myself to get caught up in this moment and say, hey, you know what would be cool? A 3-2 pitch right here. No, you have to call a ball or a strike because that's what it is. And then when it's 3-1, you're not calling strike two on a pitch that's six inches off the plate. You can't do it. And if that's what umpires are going to continue to do, then MLB does need to implement the challenge system they have in the minors. And I honestly think you could go every batter in a game 
gets one per game that they get to use. And as a batter, you might think it should be used early, but honestly, you maybe you wait for it because you never know when you might need it later. But that'll be up to the batter to decide, and at least at that point, they have some agency in it. Each batter should get to pick. And you might say that takes forever. It doesn't need to because you don't need a full NFL review. You don't need a full MLB put on the headset review every time you're going to argue a ball strike. If MLB cared enough, they would implement somebody in every stadium that for every game is on it. And they are looking at it and they've got the, just like they do for tennis. It's so freaking fast. It's not even a problem. And I know that in tennis, that's actually like a computer simulation, computer generated version of whether it was in or out. They don't even, it's not the physical. We got to look at a video. They need to implement that technology because it freaking exists. It exists. It's not just imaginary. Tennis has been using it for years. There's no reason not to use it. There's a way to implement this and to make it happen. And it could happen within the, the time of a pitch clock to say, okay, we, we did get this correct. We didn't. And do like they do in tennis. Put it up on the big screen and have it play out that way so the fans can get into it as well. There is no excuse for Major League Baseball to not have it at this point. And again, if you've listened to my content before, you know that this is not generally the way I go about it. I normally say, eh, come on. The players should be responsible for what happens in their game. If they win or they lose, it's on the players. They could have executed more, whatever. But this was such a primary example of the umpire swinging a game that I couldn't let it go. So let me know what you think. Do you agree or disagree? Challenge system in the MLB, would you like to see maybe just a full-scale robot umpire crew? What needs to be taking place here? Comment below on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at for 12 and let me know what you think. If you're just a Spotify listener or Apple Podcast, I believe comments can be left on those platforms as well. And tonight on the episode podcast for Spotify, I'll make sure to uh, the, the, we get one question per episode. I'll say, hey, what do you think about the umpire situation. Let me know what you think there as well. But migrate to YouTube if you'd like to hear your comments because uh, that's where I can really get into the nitty-gritty and comment and respond back to you guys. So I think it's completely crazy, but it is what it is at this point, and the Cardinals have lost their winning streak. Fortunately, I guess if you still care about the division, the Brewers lost as well. But now it's a situation where is there enough for this Cardinals team, for this front office, for John Moselock to say we should wait and see what happens over the next few days? I don't think there is. I think if they find a deal they like, they're going to jump on it, and I can't even fault them for it at this point. It is just such a shame, though, that they're in this situation because of the way they played early in the season, obviously, but that they're coming out of it and playing some good ball, and then I think they were robbed of an opportunity today to potentially extend that winning streak. And now that maybe has an impact on what they do. Again, I'm not trading anybody in terms of Flaherty, Montgomery, Hicks before the end of the weekend for sure. And maybe if I can strain to do so, I'd wait till the end of the road trip as uh, the Cubs are coming into town next weekend for another long series. They go to Arizona early this coming week, and you've got two more in Chicago before that. Let the Arizona series play out. At a minimum, let the Chicago series play out. If you are out in Arizona and there's a deal for Montgomery that you just can't pass up or Flaherty, who would then be scheduled to pitch earlier in that Chicago series next week at Bush, I think you at that, well, actually, 
five days away, I think he would be in Arizona too. Montgomery would be more like the uh, Chicago series on Friday if I'm doing my math at Bush. So those things are maybe a little bit up for discretion, but if there's a deal to be made and it really, you believe in your heart of hearts that it benefits the future of the team, ideally, as we've talked about on several of these YouTube videos, you're trading Montgomery or Flaherty, you're getting a starter back that isn't proven, isn't a guarantee, but you've got two months now to plug him in, put him in your major league rotation to find out because that way it'll give you more clarity on what you need to do going into the offseason. Because if the Cardinals had not given a run of six or eight starts to Matthew Libertor like they did, they might think, hey, Matthew Libertor can be part of our 2024 rotation. And maybe he still can. But at this point, I don't think you can know with certainty that he should be penciled into that group because of the way that he's performed. So there's a lot of that that I feel like the Cardinals can certainly benefit from if whatever guy they get for these rentals is someone they can use because they damn sure should not trade him for a position player. It doesn't matter. You don't need any position player the way you do pitching. And so you're not trading any of these rental pitchers, Montgomery, Flaherty, or Hicks for a hitter. Absolutely not. Did they trade Henesis Cabrera for a position player? They did. Kid Hernandez, who's 19 years old out of Toronto, was a recent draft pick. He's going to be low, low in the minor leagues. It doesn't really matter. It reminds me of when the Cardinals traded Matt Adams for Juan Yepes. When Yepes was like 18 years old, you're like, okay, whatever. That guy's probably nothing. And then Yepes worked his ass off and for the next five years just hit everywhere they sent him. And what do you know? He ends up in the big leagues to his own credit. Does that make him a superstar? No. But Cabrera was DFA'd. He was on the outs anyway. To get anything you can for him is a is a benefit. But that's not the situation when it comes to Montgomery, when it comes to Flaherty, when it comes to Jordan Hicks. So getting pitching, anything else doesn't matter. Can you get pitching that is at least either somewhat experienced in MLB or if they're not, they're at AAA because that is one step away and the Cardinals can basically say, hey, we're out of it. What's this kid got? Can we find out now to where by the time it's February 2024, we've got a much better idea whether we can rely upon this guy or not. Those are the choices the Cardinals have to make. The loss on Friday does hurt if you were holding out hope that they would not sell, that they would hold the fort and just let it play out the way that it could. I don't think that'll happen. I think we're going to have a lot of action over the next couple of weeks when it comes to the St. Louis Cardinals making moves ahead of the deadline. So make sure you guys are subscribed to the YouTube channel. Plenty of Cardinals talk coming your way on V-Shape Daily, which I'll post every day to YouTube. It'll also be on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if you can subscribe, follow, and give a review on those apps as well. That's going to do it, though, for this edition of the show. I appreciate you guys, as always, for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time on B-Shape Daily. Peace!